everyone. Welcome to Name Drop San Diego, a podcast about some of the most interesting people who are from San Diego County or are living here. I'm Christy Totten. I'm Abby Hamblin, and this episode features one of the most influential doctors in the country, Eric Topol. He's a highly cited and prolific researcher and author. He's the founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, and he's a professor of molecular medicine and executive VP of Scripps Research. Dr. Topol is normally focused on genomics and digital medicine, but this year he's helping with the coronavirus pandemic. That's mostly what we'll be talking about during this episode, though we'll get into some other things he's working on too. Yeah, we wanted to take a moment to shout out our own amazing team of healthcare and science reporters who have covered the pandemic diligently and expertly, including Jonathan Wozen, Paul Sisson, Gary Robbins, and others in our newsroom. You can find their work by visiting SanDiegoUnionTribune.com and click the COVID-19 tab at the top. Here's our interview with Dr. Topol. Um, Okay, well, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. We can just jump right in if you're ready to go. Yeah, I'm all set. Awesome. Okay, well... So you're someone at the forefront of medicine, and you do spend a lot of time writing and researching about the future of your industry. So since you do spend so much time kind of thinking forward, I wondered if previous to the coronavirus uh, pandemic hitting the U.S., did you spend much time thinking about pandemics and the preparedness for them? No, I didn't, to be honest, uh, Abby. I I actually have never spent much time in the infectious disease world. Uh, I kind of left that for others like my colleague, Christian Anderson, and, you know, because I got so many other things to be working on. Um, so what happened was, you know, in February, it just kind of switched everything, you know, basically all my attention to what was happening because I figured, well, maybe I can help contribute. Um, just, there's so many parts of it that are, you know, uh, life science and medicine. So it's easy to kind of, this plasticity of the things that I have worked in but no, I, it was all new to me. It was a lot of on-the-job training, a lot of um, uh, connecting with experts to help bring me along so I could help be, you know, be useful in some respect. Yeah, well, according to your Twitter feed and your many you know, research uh, papers and articles that have come out, you're now very involved. Uh, but what did you have planned for this year before you kind of jumped into that space? Well, the whole idea was to build uh, our uh, artificial intelligence life science institute um, to get more uh, recruits in and we have right now a mismatch of incredible data sets and then the analytic capabilities because we need more people we need to build an endowment we need to really scale that up so that was my plan for 2020 and then this happened um, but you know right now because of all the work in genomics and in digital the thing that is really um, exciting is that we're on the cusp of a whole new capability with with AI to make medicine and science better. Uh, and I, I'm hoping San Diego will be the leader in that space uh, in the country, if not, you know, one of the leaders in the world. So that's my aspiration, but it's been put a little bit on hold. You know, you're such a huge presence on Twitter. We follow you. We encourage all of our listeners to follow you. Um, you're always tweeting the latest news and journal articles. How do you stay up to date on the news? Well, well, it's obviously, a, thank you. It's obviously a challenge, but I kind of took that on as a role uh, because, you know, up until the pandemic, I was tweeting a fair amount. That's probably tripled, at least quadrupled now. 
Um, but the idea is that um, I did find Twitter in the first 10 years that I was on it. Um, this is the 11th year. Uh, the first, I found it an incredible way to communicate um, science and advances and, you know, kind of latest and greatest um, because it brings together the, the key people. Uh, it's informative to those, you know, uh, that are not initiated, that are not part or part of the science community, but it also brings together. So for example, you know, through this process, I've made so many friends uh, in areas of immunology, virology, epidemiology, you know, you name it, who I didn't know any of these people before. So I love it. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's worth the time to me. I, you know, there is, it is true that you get backlash and you get, you know, really nasty people, as I'm sure you've seen. I mean, it's horrendous, the kind of stuff that you get post, posted in response to something you put up. So I have to kind of weed through that, block a lot of people, mute a lot of people. But overall, the net benefit, I think, is great. Yeah, I mean, that's another question. We obviously want to combat disinformation, right, in the news. Yeah. There's a lot of that out there right now, you know, related to COVID and I think just medicine in general. Like, do you take the time to respond to, to doubters? And what do you say? Well, it depends on their, uh, oftentimes I don't have time, but if I do, uh, it depends. Like if they're clearly in another orbit, <laughs> and they're, and they're really uh, obnoxious or you know egregious. I just block them, you know, and accusing me of fear porn when I'm just trying to tell the truth or fear monger or you know that kind of stuff. Uh, sometimes just they appear that they really are inquisitive, and if I have the time, I'll try to respond. Um, but you know, I'm more interested in just getting out good information um, than to try to handle. A lot, like sometimes I don't do enough of a job of translating something that's that's somewhat complex. But if that person just read a little bit, if they went to the link, they would get the answers to their question. And I, what I just don't get is why people don't read more. I mean, I just it, it drives yeah. me nutty. You know, it's one thing to be anti-science, but what about being anti-reading? You know, it's just yeah. So Christy I and I are aggressively I nodding. Yeah, you, 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 and us both. Nobody ever clicks the link before complaining. It's a, it's amazing to me. Yeah. So for I have little patience for that because, you know, um, like yesterday there was a, a Alaska allergy um, uh, anaphylaxis, and I I heard about it, the details of, of of some of it, and I posted it, and then I you know get all these questions, and you know people can just Google, you know they can just. Ha, Anyway, um, yeah, I'm, you know, I, I think the, the it, Twitter's like a nervous system where you have um, uh, constant information. Not all of it is good, obviously, but if you find the right network of people, um, I think it provides a, a great ancillary way to stay up on things. And I've always been an information junkie. So for me, it's like Jack Dorsey came up with something that was useful. Little, you know, I learned that he and his three friends were in a bar in San Francisco. And this was going to be like, I'm going to go to the bathroom. That was going to be the tweet. And it, look what it turned into, right? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it just evolves to something that's really uh, a critical platform in science and medicine. And, you know, what's also funny is um, a lot of people, when I got on it uh, 11 years ago, they said I was crazy. It's, it's you know, it's like for Lady Gaga or something. <laughs> and all of them are on it now. <laughs> there you go. You and Lady Gaga at the forefront of the Twitter movement. Yeah, oh, well, I think... 
It's funny, really. I think that raises the question, which is central right now. And I actually heard you talking about it on one of your podcasts recently is how do we get the public information aspect of these uh, public health issues? Correct. Like how do we cut through the noise? How do we get scientists to, you know, communicate simply and understandably to the public, but also the public to trust and understand. And obviously journalists play a role. We're really proud to have a, uh, person with a reporter with an immunology PhD on our staff, you know, yeah, but there's no, such I've noticed that. It's yeah, great. he's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's just, I think that's the big question right now. And especially as the vaccine push uh, begins, how, how can we going forward do better with the communication aspects of something like this? Yeah. Well, I think part of our problem is, uh, in fact, I was just talking to the folks in Hawaii before we hooked up, uh, how to oh, manage wow. the pandemic. Uh, University of Hawaii and the whole, the whole state organized this conference. And, you know, we don't have a communicator every day uh, for San Diego that each, every day gives a, 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 a briefing. You know, it could be 10 minutes, but uh, someone, a trusted individual or a group that gives, um, and I would like to see that because I think, you know, every place has its own issues. And right now we're in bad shape in San Diego. And, uh, you know, the question is, what are we doing to um, navigate through this? You know, why did we go through this strip club thing and now the restaurant? I mean, this is just, you, you can't make this stuff up, right? It's the headlines of, of the paper today. Um, and so, you know, we don't have communication at the, at the national level, you know, that got sidelined, uh, but also locally, you know, why don't we have somebody that, whether it's from the, uh, the uh, Union Tribune, or whether it's Nathan Fletcher, or you know somebody who's trustworthy who would give a briefing every day, and it could be archived if you couldn't you know listen to it right then. But you know it's it's the daily. What we are stuck with in San Diego is you, know, you go to the website to see oh it's ten percent and there's two thousand more cases, and you don't know what's going on. You don't know what people are thinking that are managing this situation. And I know a little bit because I work with Christian Anderson and he's on that panel. So sometimes I'll say, Christian, what is going on? But the public should, is uninformed. It's like you take a flight and there's all sorts of you know, horrendous turbulence and the pilot doesn't even come on and you think it's going down and the pilot doesn't come on and let you know everything's okay, that you know, we're gonna land the plane. I mean, we don't have anything here to help us. And it's a, it's a helplessness that is just not acceptable. And in many countries, that are the leaders in running the pandemic, they relied on daily communication. If you look at the countries that did the best, you know, uh, Vietnam, Thailand, Taiwan, um, uh, New Zealand, Australia, uh, Uruguay, Estonia, uh, Iceland, you know, I, I give you a long list, Germany, every day, it was a briefing. What do we have? You know, it's incredible. Yeah, well, I think um, that's definitely the question that our reporters are going to be trying to answer and continue to try and answer. I like that analogy. Um, so, but we do have like the county press conference that does happen, I guess, not every day, but you're talking about like a, like even Saturday, Sunday, like round the clock sort of communication. Yes. I mean, I, I, I would like to, I, I haven't seen that press conference uh, and I don't know if it's widely viewed and yeah. known about is it abby uh, yeah well i mean i think reporters watch it and then try yeah. and kind of dissem disseminate the information but yeah it's 
I, I don't know who is available at 2.30. I think it's been 4.30 at some points and 3.30. Right. And... I, I, I'm looking for something that's for the public. Um, right. So, it, 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 and it's, um, you know, something that is really useful. But anyway, you know, I think we can do much better there. There's many things we can do better. But here, you know, San Diego is such a, um, a big life science and medical community. And it's disappointing that we haven't shown leadership not just for California, but for the country. We have the capacity to do that. And we have not risen to the level. We have, we have anti-science people that work at the county that I now understand, unfortunately, that are, you know, they, they wanted to let it rip herd immunity, you know, things are totally mal-informed, uh, you know, stuff that's been going on. And I, I, I just, I'm amazed about this. So we have to do better. Uh, well, so obviously messaging is a problem, but beyond that, I mean, what do you think we've done well um, as a state and, and not so well? Well, we did kind of take the lead in the beginning from uh, with uh, Gavin Newsom at the governor level to be the first state to basically a stay at home order. That was great. If only we stayed at home longer. And during that time at stayed at home, we got all the testing right, the contact tracing right. And basically the infrastructure that we needed. We've not used any digital surveillance, uh, which is easy. We've done studies to show that there's so much data that people are passively could could donate to know where the next you know outbreak is before. So we didn't get an infrastructure ready when we had everything down, which is amazing. So we just reopened prematurely because the task force for the California was all these business people, like 80 of them. And they all pressured them. We got to open. We got to open. We got to get the and the, the the idea that the economy could drive things rather than the public health is ludicrous. And look what happened. So now we're in a desperate situation. I mean, now the number of cases, the number of deaths, the hospitalizations, ICU. I mean, it's just all the metrics are just horrific. And it was all preventable. So what we could have done um, besides the one thing that we did well, which was early. Uh, um, uh, you know, shut down. But what we could have done, we still can do. Uh, and we have to go after it, you know, aggressively. But we should get rapid tests for every household in California, starting in San Diego. We should get high quality masks to every household, a good supply, like surgical masks or, you know, something that's better than a, a one layer cloth mask. Um, we should get them like the, you, the, you know, the post office was planning to send out 600 million of them, and that got blocked by Trump. You know, we should be doing things to empower people that, that make them part of the story. When you're doing your own rapid home test each day, you feel like you've got power. Uh, and, and we don't, we, well, what we have is helplessness, hopelessness. And this has been a long marathon and we have months to go before we get to the point where we're starting to get population level immunity. And what people, they're just so tired of it and complacent and we have to fight that off. Well, speaking of digital solutions, you know, California launched an app, a contact tracing, you know, exposure notification app this week. Uh, have you opted in? And do you see that making much of a difference at this point? I haven't opted in yet. I'm, I'm actually thinking about it. Um, the reason I think it, it will be useful if we get the vast majority of people on it. Uh, but right now without a strong participation. I'm not sure how valuable it's going to be. The concerns about it are false positives that you get alerts 
that you've been in contact with someone who's got uh, likely COVID or uh, exposed to COVID and, and they're false, or um, that there's a privacy issue. Uh, and I'm not so worried about the privacy concern uh, if, if the trade-off is that it helps keep you safe. Well, you know, for this brief, you know, months duration. So I'm going to continually uh, assess that. I don't think it's as helpful as the digital surveillance, which is knowing a neighborhood cluster of people that are lighting up because their heart rate has gone up, their resting heart rate, and their steps have gone down. And therefore, you've got a place to go zoom in on and block that from a chain of much bigger spreading. That I think is the one area that we could use now. 100 million people in the US have a smartwatch or a fitness band, a Fitbit. And all they have to do is you know, start collecting the data. The other thing is in San Diego, we have potential for wastewater uh, uh, surveillance. And the only place it's checked is UCSD. But the whole city, we have other municipal uh, access and we never get the data. So there's so many different ways that we could be on top of this and we're not even tapping into it. And that data should be made available like a weather report. So every San Diegan, like they look at the weather, they should be looking at their COVID status for them, you know, right? Their geolocation at that moment to tell them, you know, is it a green light? Just like air quality, weather. And they, they should have that data. And we should be leading that for the country to show that it's feasible. Well, when you look at the reasons it's not happening, why do you think that is? Is it because, you know, uh, business leaders making decision? Is it a lack of expertise among public health officials? Why aren't we going after those easy solutions? Well, the digital stuff, which you introduced, um, is kind of like the Rodney Dangerfield uh, of, of all this, Christy. That is, uh, nobody respects it. That the only thing they respect is test, 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 test. What they don't get is that it's not just tests that are one-off measurements that have false uh, negatives and uh, false positives too, but they, they're hard to get, uh, the ones that, ex the PCR tests that exist today, they're hard to get and they're expensive. Uh, and, uh, you know, some places you can't even get them because you have to have symptoms or whatever. So the point is tests don't work. Look what we have with the testing failure of today. Digital is continuous, continuous, and it's free. But we can't get this San Diego County, you know, one of the top 10 populations in the United States to get behind it. It's just incredible to me. And so it here it'd be it, except for the data analytics, it's free. You just got to get people. You know, if we had the public health people and the the leaders of this of our where we live stand up and say everyone should get on the detect app. You know, everyone should you know be participating in digital surveillance. So we'll know what street is lighting up as a potential for COVID. We could get uh, on top of this. Right now, all we have is the react to, oh my gosh, this one zip code has got a problem. That's the, we're so late in the game, just by wastewater, we would know three days in advance, a part of San Diego County that had a problem, uh, you know, and we don't even do that. So we're so, you know, it just drives me nuts about yeah. what we could do and what we're, what we're not doing. 
and the lack of respect for digital. That's why I don't think the contact tracing will get the legs because digital tools are just not respected enough. Now in Germany, the CDC equivalent, it's called the RKI, the Robert Koch Institute, they got behind it. And every, you know, in Germany, they, they have a, what they call the fever curve. It's a digital map of every nook and cranny of the entire country. So they can tell exactly what's lighting up as a potential emerging beginning of an outbreak and then quash it before it ever gets, you know, any, any uh, spread. Well, your, your frustration is visible and even audible. And so um, thanks for sharing uh, your thoughts on that. But we do want to get into something that seems like maybe a positive turn to this yeah, interview, sure, which sure. is yeah. <laughs> which is obviously the vaccines. And I think your tweet that you have pinned on your Twitter really sums up kind of something that's really important to talk about. It says, um, this will go down in history as one of science and medical research's greatest achievement. And you have posted there a, a kind of like a timeline of from first coronavirus case to first person vaccinated. So can you put into perspective to our listeners, especially who are in the medical or science uh, worlds, how big and how impressive this really is? Yeah, Abby, this is, um, to me, talk about upside and upbeat. This is enthralling. This is the greatest uh, anything I've seen in my 35 years in, in medicine and science. I mean, I don't think we can convey how extraordinary this is. To have the first documented case, uh, December uh, one, and then to have a vaccine that is actually being given to people that's hyper efficacious, 95% reduction of illness. Uh, and the fact that it, it was happening, these big trials of 74,000 people, the fact that a, a Chinese scientist shared the genome sequence on the 10th of January, and within days we had a, we had templates to make the vaccine, and then all these trials got done, and you know, and and we're now giving the vaccines out that are so remarkably potent um, and safe. Um, so this is unprecedented. This is one of the greatest triumphs of science and medicine in history, if not the greatest, because we desperately needed it. The average, just for perspective, the average time to get a vaccine uh, is eight years. And this was done in essentially less than a year. Um, it's amazing. And you know, the other thing that's amazing about it, not just the speed, but we were happy if we got a 50% effective vaccine. 95%, no one was expecting that. And replicated with two mRNA vaccines. So this is, you know, it's the best of times and the worst of times, all all at once. But we are we have an exit ramp, and we just have to sit tight, and we will get out of this mess. And if it wasn't for the vaccines that are going to accelerate this exit, I don't know what we'd be doing and what we'd be talking about right now. Do you think that COVID has changed people's receptiveness to taking vaccines? You know, there's been this anti-vaxxer conversation on the rise. The last thing I heard even about the COVID vaccine is that 40% of people were still pretty unsure whether they wanted to take a vaccine that was developed so quickly. So what do you say to that? Yeah, well, it's really interesting, uh, the, this concept of the anti-vax movement with a vaccine that's so extraordinary, or vaccines that are so... So what we've seen in the recent weeks is ever since the... 95% uh, efficacy came out, we're seeing the movement towards uh, a favorable vaccine. Some of the recent surveys have gotten up well above 70, even 
So the polls are looking much better about would you take the vaccine? So one of that is driving it is efficacy. Another is the more people that stand up that are you know trusted, who get the vaccines, take pictures and videos and, and help their own peers and their community, um, that's gonna help. Now, what's really interesting is that the people who got infected, 60 million Americans or more have been infected with COVID. 60 plus million people, 20% of our population. And maybe it only looks like 16 or 17 million, but it's actually a whole lot more because of the, the asymptomatics, the not tested and on and on. Now, of those 60 million, at least half are anti-vaxxers, anti-science, anti-mask. And you know what? It's okay. They don't want to get the vaccine. They already have natural immunity. So they're going to help us get to the population immunity that we need. So they unwittingly, their anti-vax position is going to help us because they went out without masks. They were brazen. They didn't uh, adhere to any recommendations, uh, distancing crowds and on and on. And they're going to help us because we're going to get to the population immunity faster because of them. It's like <laughs> galaxy brain response there that I hope our listeners, you know, really take that to heart. Um, do you think that the the such the rapid pace that we saw and all the energy and funding and all those sorts of things um, bode well for breakthroughs in other areas, including cancer and some of the areas, you know, where we just have there's there's progress, but it's we haven't seen as quick of progress as something like this. Yeah, I mean, I think the progress uh, has been stunning. Um, the problem, I mean, it's steady. I mean, every day there's new major science advance. Um, you know, there hasn't been any let up. I mean, in the science community, it's 24-7. I've never seen intensity. What we're seeing is people from other parts of science have just migrated into this COVID thing. This is like, not, this is not a Manhattan project. This is a planetary project. And so, um, you know, that's what I love is, you know, looking at the advances that come up each day. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. I, you know, science has always moved at a fast pace, but not like this. Um, so I don't see any less intensity. Um, you know, I think there's lots of unanswered questions. I mean, one of the biggest is long COVID. Why do so many people and we don't even know how many people, what percent, but it's a lot. Why do they get these chronic, serious uh, problems uh, that are, you know, are very durable, may, not just months, but could be years, we don't even know. And so people, you know, they tend to look at how many people died, how many people are in the hospital, what they're not looking at, which is a much bigger group of the people with long COVID. So we have a lot more science to do to advance that. We almost know nothing right now about long COVID. Um, about how to prevent it, except not get the infection, how to treat it, what is really causing it. That's an example of a big, dark, you know, uh, 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 hole in our knowledge base. And we have many more like that. Lee, on the flip side, you mentioned, you know, your own organization having to pause some of the things you've been working on. Uh, I mean, is this a setback for other sciences in any way? Yeah, it's a really good point. I do think many areas are, are gonna take um, at least a temporary hit because even though most of science is progressing, the, the, there is a fixation on the pandemic and to study 
aspects of it that are germane to contribute. Everybody feels they need to contribute in some way. So I think areas that uh, obviously are, you know, so important, like cancer biology, neuroscience, and all these other fields, they're going to move, progress on, but maybe not with the same uh, intensity because of the distraction and because of shunting some of the efforts. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure there's some of that. It's hard to quantify. Yeah, well, you mentioned Germany, all these other countries, you know, you've actually uh, been engaged with England on doing a pretty uh, extensive audit and sort of a roadmap for their national healthcare system. I wondered what lessons that you think our U.S. healthcare system and our, you know, uh, science community can take from the way other countries have responded and what should the public know about? I mean, obviously, you can't compare the U.S. to Germany in size or you know, some other factors, but I think there are lessons to be learned. So what, how do you view that? Well, it's really interesting. I mean, there are a lot of themes. If you go across all these great country performances, uh, like the ones I mentioned, uh, one is that they not only had, you know, really good public communication, uh, daily briefings, they, and they, they had basically uh, science driven. Everything they did was science driven. So if you look at the success record, it's extraordinary. Uh, some of the strategies were a little different, like Japan really uh, pushed hard on this uh, cluster busting strategy of the, you know, the crowds and gatherings. Others, you know, were much more on enforcing masks, you know, not just our mandate that's not enforced, but really enforcing with fines and, you know, really um, bearing down on people that were not, um, uh, but, you know, one of the, things that's of note is that all these countries that um, have been successful, they have been very aggressive. None of it happened by accident. They, they did testing aggressively for the most part. I mean, you can, many of them had women leaders, which is really extraordinary. And I think maybe that conveys that they put uh, human life and health above the economics. I don't know what it conveys, but if you look, there's definitely a theme there many of the countries. Like, for example, um, uh, in Germany, it's led by a scientist. Uh, in New Zealand, who was one of the top 10 uh, uh, nature uh, people of the country of the of the year, uh, Jacinda, I mean, she, Dern, she uh, clearly um, is another great leader. Uh, you see it in uh, many places around the world. It's really interesting. Now, uh, the qualities that, that we have are unfortunately shared with the UK. We had uh, a populist leader who didn't believe in science. Ours was much worse, but uh, still, I mean, we had no communication from the science. It wasn't a science driven. We had the opposite. We had to let it rip, surrender, you know, so hard, only one other country in the world, Sweden, had this sense of, oh, you can let the virus spread and that's okay. And here we had herd immunity, which has never been achieved naturally with a pathogen virus. We had herd immunity being advocated by, you know, Scott Atlas and people that Trump uh, brought into his um, advice as, as advisors. I mean, it's amazing. So that's the difference that explains the, the heterogeneity around the world, I think. 
Something else I've read, though, is like, you know, we know how to prevent this, right? Like the guidance is out there. We can ask you, you can tell us. But the problem is like really behavior. It's like we can't make people stay home. We can't make people wear a mask, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Is that something you think about or is that something uh, the medical community is working on? Just how to improve actual behaviors? You're, You're right. This is a behavior story. But the behavior is a buy-in to the science, the leaders, the trust. We don't have that. And so you get, you get a lot of better behavior when you have someone of, that you respect, uh, you know, a peer or someone from your community or so, whoever that person is, who stands up and, and is uh, basically informative, uh, trustworthy. It promotes good behavior. So when you have a president who won't wear a mask for months or a mixed up CDC and WHO not even promoting. So when you have mix ups, when you have bad leadership and, you, and people don't know what they basically, you know, well, what's convenient? Well, it isn't convenient to wear a mask and it isn't convenient to not gather with your friends or your family or whatever. So, um, you know, in order to, to uh, take on the hard, uh, heavy lifting, you got to have trust and we have, you have and communication. We haven't had it. The other side of it is, you know, the, the stick, which is the enforcement. We haven't had that either, but you hate to resort to the stick when you, when you can use the carrot. Um, we could do so much better. On the subject of sort of public perception, I find it really interesting that in previous years we've had so much political debate about, you know, big pharma and the demonization of it. And then there's the whole conversation about, you know, the financial world. And this year we're rooting on Pfizer. And as we speak, Moderna, you know, <laughs> is the is having their review. So I, yeah. I wonder, you know, how do you view or how do you think the public should view the pharmaceutical world now that we've seen how important it is, you know, this year, but in other times, it's all about a big political debate and all about the money. Right, Abby. Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, I heard you talking about this on your podcast. So that's what made me think. Yeah, I was all over Pfizer because the CEO was making pronouncements that they were going to have their vaccine approved uh, EUA in, in October. And Trump was also trumpeting that. And, you know, they weren't releasing their protocol. And so I, you know, I basically put the squeeze on them uh, along with the, Moderna and the other to get their protocols out and to do it right and the FDA. Now, even though I was really hard on them uh, and especially Pfizer, I, I met with their team, Catherine Jensen and their team that led, led, led the vaccine project. I have to give them credit because they, 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 they came through, they, they got the trials done. They, they did a, a, a phenomenal job in getting their data authentically out there, um, now published in the New England Journal, Moderna Today. So um, I think it's a different look for biopharma because they you know, kind of came, they rose to the occasion, they, they were part of the rescue rather than, now the, the, the US bought all these vaccines, they're for free. So it's unusual because here we are, we're usually paying through the nose to get our prescriptions. And so not only did the pharma come through with these two potent vaccines, but for the first time, people are getting it for free, which, you know, if we lived in other countries, they'd always get everything for free, right? So this is a unique experience that where people don't realize how different a look this is, because um, it's unique. I mean, 
you know, the, the, the pharmaceutical industry, which has been gouging the public all these years, um, they, they've been trying to promote themselves with all these, you know, ads uh, on TV and magazines about, you know, they're good people and they do good science. But what could have helped them more was a, a, a pandemic rescue mission and getting free vaccines to everyone. So, you know, it's, it's amazing, really. It is, uh, it's uncanny. Okay, so changing gears a little bit, um, in 2010, you did a TED Talk about the future of wireless medicine, and you talked about, you know, monitoring your sleep, your heart rate, uh, how many steps you take, and of course, you know, it sounds like we're talking about the Fitbit. Uh, that's obviously come to pass. My question for you is, like, has having technology, you know, self-monitoring technology like that actually improved our health? Well, in some ways, I mean, there's a report out today that people that... Um, do track their uh, activity, their steps uh, are doing uh, much better in terms of activity. And you don't know whether that's because they're tracking it that's leading to more activity or, but you know, I think it does promote uh, uh, that because people, there's nothing magical at 10,000 steps, but the fact that you're getting um, some feedback about how much you're moving is, is a good thing. And we don't have enough of that. Uh, so that's one thing, but I, I do think if you look across the board about wireless uh, digital tracking, um, you know, we're seeing more and more that reinforces that it can help people. You know, like for example, in Louisville, they did this Air Louisville project where people learned about hotspots for asthma. And they shared that in everywhere in the region uh, on apps and all the asthmatics, you know, downloaded the hotspots. And what amazing thing is that they, they got rid of asthma attacks by 80% and emergency room visits. People took less uh, medications and inhalations. So when you do it right, then Louisville, that's just one example, there's many, shared data you know, uh, can, for digitally acquired can be of enormous value. So you know, I think it's helped uh, for many people with diabetes, uh, asthma, people doing their blood pressure on their, uh, through their smartphone and sharing that with me as a cardiologist, I see, you know, hundreds of blood pressure measurements. I don't think I would have ever gotten screenshots with hundreds of blood pressure measurements. And now I can, and I, and they're self-managing their blood pressure. They're telling me, you know, it's this morning spike, or it's when I go back to work on Monday, you know, they're, they're seeing patterns that I could never see because I only get the blood pressure, you know, when they come in to see me. So I think it's, it's basically the continuous type data that um, is, got lots of potential. We're still in the early phase of it. Is there anything that didn't pan out that you hope to see happen in the future? Uh, well, lots of things. I mean, to me, the, the fantasy is to pre prevent diseases, not just better manage them. I just gave some examples of, you know, asthma, blood pressure and, and diabetes where you're just getting better management. I want to prevent them. And that's where I think the AI will come in is if we had multi-dimensional data on each of us continuously, and it was all processed with individualized algorithm, and you knew you were at risk for this condition, but you never got it because you got coached from your data. Uh, that's where we're headed. Um, and I think that's especially exciting. And it, you know, we'll start seeing that more and more in the years ahead. This reminds me, did you see the documentary, or I'm sure you're familiar with the case about Theranos, though? You know, we're talking oh, yeah. sort of about self-directed medicine. And of course, that sounds like a dream, right? Like, we want to have control over health. We want to, uh, you know, know what's going on in our bodies at all times. But it seems, at least by that example, 
it was a little premature. I mean, do you think we'll ever yeah. be able to have something like that? Well, the reason why Theranos got uh, support was because the ideas were good. It's just that it was fraudulent. You know, all the things that Elizabeth Holmes was advocating are the good things. That is, you know, be able to get uh, a, a blood test with one drop of blood, uh, get the results quickly, inexpensively. Order your own tests, right? Yeah, order your own tests. You know, these are empowerment. These are good things. But the problem is that it wasn't real and, and people got hurt. Now, um, all those things that she advocated years ago are now starting to become real. You know, we, we've got San Diego companies that are doing a lot of these things now, which is exciting. So we will get there, um, but the, the, it's not for everybody. You know, there's, there's some people that they like the traditional doctor knows best. A lot of people want to be involved and in, want to have some charge in their care, own care. And this is what it allows is, you know, lab tests, sensors, uh, eventually imaging, uh, all sorts of things that you'll be able to do which you couldn't have done, you know, uh, in recent times. So that's what uh, I, the, the majority of people want that type of medicine when they're engaged, they're, they're participating, they're generating data. And, and we'll see more of that in the years ahead. So has, has some of the work you've been doing with the coronavirus, um, you know, I know you worked with the Rockefeller Foundation on a uh, uh, testing and tracing plan, an action plan, you know, you're very involved now. Has this kind of changed some of the things that you have ahead for you? Uh, has it given you new ideas or new projects you'd like to take on? Or are you going to try and get back to what you were doing uh, once this is all said and done? Well, I think it's reinforced what the, the plan was, you know, in terms of the AI life science, because we're, that comes into play in COVID as well. I mean, eventually we're going to keep people at home unless they need an intensive care unit bed because their vital signs can be continuously monitored um, at home. I mean, you know, I've got these, these devices like this one here, you know, this little button you can wear it for two months and it gets everything but blood pressure. Um, and so we're gonna use AI to take all this data to show it's safe that you don't have to be in the hospital for COVID or anything uh, unless you're in a, an emergency room situation or you're having an operation or you're really acutely ill that you'd be in the ICU. But otherwise we got to get rid of hospitals. That's where the costs are gutting this country. You know, that's out of the 3.7 trillion, 1.3 are from hospitals. And we can get rid of that and make people be able to stay in their home. Wouldn't that be nice? So AI is going to uh, eventually get rid of gut hospitals from what they do today. Um, and it's just a matter of time. Now, the hospitals don't like that because that's a big money maker. That's big business. But that's where it is inevitably headed because of the ability to get the data and process the data and do things remotely, which is, you know, what we learned in the pandemic uh, as far as visits. So, um, no, I think it's basically to push on, um, you know, a, a year from now, we'll be looking in our rearview mirror at this pandemic largely and it's get back to work, but uh, it's reinforced a lot of the things that I think are important. So I just want to clarify, you're saying that one day there will not be hospitals. Well, not fully. Uh, that is, the hospitals will be unrecognizable from where they are today. They will have intensive care units. They'll have fancy imaging equipment and fancy lab areas. They will have an emergency room 
and a surgical operating rooms, but they won't have beds. Regular hospital rooms are going to be eventually unnecessary. So that comprises 70, 80% of hospitals today is the hospital rooms. And we don't need hospital rooms. These people, they should go home or they should never be in the hospital in the first place. So um, that's where we're headed. It'll take longer than it should. The reason being is hospitals don't wanna lose their reimbursement. They're a big business. And so right now, I mean, you know, why is American medicine so expensive and so poor in outcomes? It's because it's such a big business that it's, it's um, you know, ossified about reimbursement, but we can break that up. And I'm optimistic that someday um, hospital rooms will be a rarity. Yeah, I highly recommend. I, I know we've talked about coronavirus a lot in this interview, but you do have a book out, Deep Medicine, about these particular issues. And you talk about it a lot in your work as editor of Medscape. So everyone can go read up more on your takes on all of that soon. But I think the question that we have to ask you as someone who is so in tune with the coronavirus is the question <laughs> everyone wants to know, when will we get back to normal? Or when do you think normal will be? Or is there a normal? Should we keep our masks handy? Like, what's your take on kind of getting over to the other side of the coronavirus pandemic? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we're going into the new year um, like a lion and we'll be coming out of it like a lamb, like we used to say about March, but this would be like the year. Um, because what's going to happen is, you know, the, the hit of the holidays of Christmas on top of Thanksgiving and the lack of any management, um, it's just going to get worse uh, in the weeks ahead. Now, as more and more people get vaccinated, and with that big group that don't want to get vaccinated, that a lot of them were infected, we'll get there pretty quickly. And you'll start to see, you know, March, April, May, you'll start to see the virus is starting to have a hard time to find people to invade. And then by July, you know, we're going to be in pretty good shape. So, you know, the virus is going to be around all next year. Um, and, and for the good part of the year, we need to wear a mask because for one reason, we don't know a hundred percent if the transmission capability is inhibited. It looks like it will be largely, but not completely. That is you get the vaccine. Once you develop immunity, you don't get illness, but could you harbor the virus in your nose and your nasal mucosa? And it looks like, you know, for some people they can, and we don't know who. So we're going to need masks. And you don't know if you've had the perfect response to the vaccine, 5% of people may not, or, or maybe even a little, little higher. So we're going to be wearing masks for, you know, a good part of the year. But, you know, I think you'll see by summer, a big difference, big difference. And then by this time next year, we'll, we'll get together again. And we'll reflect about how 2021 was a lot better year than 2020, which was the annus horribilis of all times, right? Um, I'm excited about where we're headed. Uh, I just wish it wasn't that we had to build on the worst time of the pandemic. We could have gotten this faster if we didn't have such a burden of spread as we do right now. Well, yeah, we'll 4th of July party. You heard it yeah. here first, July. That I'm putting my heart into that. I'm going to start <laughs> willing my... Sit. Fourth of July party to happen. <laughs> I sit tight till July. I, I think we're going to be in pretty good shape by then. Okay. That's, you know, that's the sense I have. Now, could I get off track? 
that is people not get vaccinated like they need to or something happens with the vaccine supply or you know there's a few ifs contingencies but if everything goes as it looks right now we should be in very good shape really okay so final question for you because we're called name drop we want to ask you to name drop someone in this community in the san diego region who has um inspired you or influenced you or just someone that you think deserves a shout out so who would that be Oh gosh, there's many, many people. Um, my colleague, uh, uh, Dennis Burton, who's a immunologist, vaccinologist is a great inspirational force to me. And he and I wrote about the superhuman immune response uh, to the, the uh, vaccine. Uh, so, you know, he's been a great uh, inspirational force. My colleague, Christian Anderson uh, is obviously that, but outside of my own circles, um, you know, I think Shane Crotty at La Jolla Immunology has been a real leader uh, in the pandemic for the immunology, immune response to the virus. And it's been good to see. Um, now that's kind of the pandemic. Uh, I mean, some of the people that I, I really regard as being highly influential in, in, in our response to the pandemic. And you're thinking more broadly, is that the question? Yeah, it can be someone that, you know, you've been here a few decades now that really sort of inspired you or that you think doesn't get enough of a spotlight as they deserve. Yeah, no, I think uh, more broadly, um, I think the potential for San Diego, we haven't even begun to actualize. We have such an incredible brain trust. Uh, we have the leading genomics company in the world with Illumina and, and many others. Uh, we have, you know, great information technology uh, leadership and wireless. And we still have... You know, I've been here 14 years and we haven't come near to start to harness that potential. And the pandemic is a chance for us to do that. We're the perfect place to do that. I mean, you know, um, so I still have hopes that because of there's such a, an amazing uh, minds here that we, we work together and um, uh, achieve that potential that we have. It, it is people don't realize. I remember when I first came here in 2006 and I met with the Chamber of Commerce and they told me, you know, what is the leading um, uh, industry here? And, you know, one of it was uh, they said it's um, tourism, tourism, wireless. And I said, well, you know, th this is the future of medicine. San Diego is it. But, um, you know, we, we, we've got to get um, the, some of the parts much better. They're all here, but they haven't been summed up. Yeah, well, Abby and I definitely agree with that. We talk about it all the time, how we're just stunned by the brain power here and all the things happening, uh, including you yeah, and your work. You. So thank you. Thank you for joining us. Well, you're very kind. It's always fun to have a chance to talk with you. And it's been a, this has been a, a fun conversation for me. Yeah. And I look forward to the next <laughs> one. See you this summer. Okay, <laughs> if not before. We're very grateful that Dr. Topol found the time for us in his insanely busy schedule. So thank you to him and to all the listeners for joining us. Yeah, we want to invite you to check out some of the other episodes of Name Drop San Diego, including interviews with musicians, chefs, authors, and all kinds of interesting people from our community. Listen to our next episode by subscribing wherever you're listening now or searching Name Drop San Diego on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We hope you'll join us for another episode soon. See you next time. Bye.